Hello, everyone. We have a fantastic episode for you today. I interview scientist turned blogger Stephanie Martin. She has the blog Steph into Nature. It's so cute. It's Steph with a parentheses around the H, like Step into Nature. But if you are an aspiring wildlife biologist or early on in this career, this is a really great episode to listen to. We not only talk about Stephanie's background as a scientist and her job now as a science communicator, but also something that's near and dear to her heart, which is barriers to entry in this field. We'll talk about what that means, but in brief, you really need experience to get into this field. It's, it's super important. And with competition increasing, and of course, conservation is not the most profitable field. Same thing with science, or at least the types of science that we do, ecology and conservation and wildlife biology. There are lots of opportunities for people to volunteer. And these opportunities, like I said, are really important for experience, for people to get into this field. But as you can imagine, if you are volunteering your time, this excludes a large proportion of the population across the whole world. So today we talk about that system and we also get into some stories about some really toxic work environments in this field. And because people are volunteering, how uh, organizations or employers can take advantage, essentially, of those employees. So again, if you're new to this field, you're definitely want you're definitely going to want to hear this conversation. Before we get started, I just wanted to give you an update on my book, Getting a Job in Wildlife Biology: What It's Like and What You Need to Know. This book is available for pre-order right now, and I think I am going to upload the actual um, book to the ebook form. So if you pre-ordered it, you should be getting it this week. I hopefully, I think I'll, I'll I have it all done, but I just need to make sure everything is um, tied together. There are some last-minute details I need to do. Um, but you can sign up for a pre-order on Amazon if you just Google that book title, you'll find it. Or If you go to fancyscientist.com and get onto my email list, I will be sending emails about this book every day now because I am doing something really fun. So starting tomorrow, there's 10 days until my book release, which the paperback release, which is going to happen on September 24th. And I have 10 chapters to this book. So every day I am going to go live on both Facebook and Instagram and tell you a nugget of wisdom from each chapter from this book. So I've created a Facebook group called Getting a Job in Wildlife Biology. If you um, just search that, you should be able to find it, but link as well, Getting a Job in Wildlife Biology after facebook.com slash groups. And I created a group because I thought it would be a really great opportunity for you all to discuss any questions you have or maybe share some experiences that you've had in this field as well, where you can't do that on my Facebook page. Tomorrow's, which is the first day of lives, it will be, this will be Monday, September 14th. It's going to be at 12 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time. And I 
our nugget of wisdom tomorrow is going to be about how life works out in your favor and that anyone can go into this field of wildlife biology. So I hope to see you there. And if you can't be there live, that's okay. Just watch the replay. Okay, so let's get started into this awesome conversation with Stephanie. That was such a great conversation with Stephanie, and I just really appreciate her being so open and honest and vulnerable with all of her experiences that she's had in this field. I know they are definitely not unique. I have dealt with a lot of the same issues that she talks about in this episode. Hi, I'm Dr. Stephanie Shuttler, a wildlife biologist who's learned throughout her career studying animals that science alone cannot save species. We need you. In the Fancy Scientist podcast, you'll learn about fun animals, conservation tips, and science advice, all while breaking stereotypes about what a scientist looks like. Let's get started. Hello, Stephanie, and welcome to the Fancy Scientist podcast. I'm so excited to have you today. Thank you, Stephanie. It's great being here. So before we get started into our our main topic of conversation, I almost said conservation, (laughs) um, I wanted to ask you about where you are now professionally and and how you got there. So right now, I'm a full-time self-employed freelance science communicator. So I do a lot of editing of scientific manuscripts and articles, and that's sort of what I consider my sort of base pay. So that sort of comfortably keeps things ticking over, which is pretty important. And then a lot of my work now is gradually becoming writing articles on different scientific topics. I usually try and focus just on environmental and conservation stuff, but I do all sorts of different things to do with science. I also have just started making videos and I sometimes advertise some things on social media. I was hired for a couple of little on-screen presenting things just before the pandemic hit, but then obviously the pandemic hit. So I didn't get to do that. But yeah. so Oh no. So you never got, you got to film them or you you didn't get to film them? I didn't get to do them at all because they were Uh, both were overseas. (laughs) So uh, they were just straight up cancelled, but hopefully it's something that can be picked up um, in the future. So I started out working in, well, what did I even start? I started, it's been kind of a weird journey, but I, I basically started in like ecology and conservation. So that's the field I was studying. And it's what I always wanted to do since I was like a really young girl. I wanted to sort of be in rainforests and study ecology and investigate stuff and protect stuff that I loved and that I cared about. And I was very set on like, yeah, I'm going to be going into a very scientific career, like academic career and go through all the stages and become a professor. But in the end, I just, I I found that the reality of working in academia just wasn't for me. Like there are so many aspects that just didn't fit of what I, like who I am as a person. And the bits that I loved the most were the communication elements. So communicating the stuff that I love to people through videos or photos or, or writing. And that's the stuff I always looked forward to doing. So after I got my master's in tropical forest ecology, I sort of took a step back, looked at the things I was doing, what I enjoyed doing, and also what I was good at and what was sustainable. And I decided to just focus on science communications full time and just keep that going. And like, I'd obviously, I would aim to still go out into the field and do field seasons and stuff like this. And I had, again, I had a field season role lined up as a lecturer in a field station in Borneo. 
And that would have been amazing. But again, the pandemic. So it's kind of a nice mix of things at the moment. But like everyone else at the moment, just various bits are on hold. That's really cool. How do you how do you arrange for those field seasons while being a science communicator? Like, do you just contact other researchers, or how, I mean, how does that work? Uh, so I worked with a. I did my thesis with an organisation called Operation Wallacea. I'm not sure if you heard of it. It's it's well, how do I even? I think it's quite straightforward, really. They just they fund a bunch of conservation programs all over the globe, and they get sort of the locals working with them as well. So it's not just sort of dumping a bunch of Westerners in a place to do a thing. It's yeah, it's, it's works with the local community and everything. But then they do also have students out there to do their field work. So I did my thesis in Madagascar for my undergrad um, and I worked with local Malagasy botanists who are now a lot of them like really close friends of mine, which is really lovely. I had one, one came and visited me in London recently, which was amazing. So I contacted them about doing a field season this year and sort of told them my skills, what I've been working in, because they take on staff like herpetologists, ornithologists, you know, bird scientists, reptile scientists. And uh, yeah, because I've been doing science communications and I've got some experience with uh, working with young people now and then, they decided that I would be quite a good fit for a lecturer. So that's how this specific job came along. I think in future that you... there's certain sites and mailing lists and that sort of thing that I found that are really, really useful for finding these sorts of positions. Like this definitely isn't the only organization I've seen advertise field seasons. And obviously field seasons are usually roughly summertime for the UK each year. So I just basically keep an eye out for those. I'm definitely one of these people who just obsessively trawls like websites and mailing lists and like applies to everything in the world, gets rejected from 99% of it. But yeah, I think it's just putting yourself out there, networking, making those connections and yeah, seeing what you can get. Cool. And then on your blog, your blog is Stuff Into Nature with the H in parentheses. So it's like Step Into Nature. And uh, you have job listings on your website. So uh, maybe you can tell us about how how this blog came about, what inspired you to specifically start this website. So I used to have a blog called Life for a Forest, which I started... So when I first went to university, I actually went in Australia and then I had to drop out due to mental health issues, financial issues, just various things going on. So I came back to the UK and I wasn't quite sure what to do with myself because I still had my passion, but I didn't really know where to put it. Like I didn't know if I would ever be able to make it through a degree due to mental health and stuff. And I didn't know whether I should be going down a different route. So I was taking on random jobs as like brand ambassador and promotional work. It was a lot of fun, like very varied. And I just didn't feel that connection to the stuff I was passionate about anymore. I didn't have that sort of environmental connection. So I started this blog, Life for a Forest, just so that I had that connection so that I could write about the things that I love and I could write about and I could share photos about the stuff I love. And so a lot of it, you know, it wasn't great. It was like rewrites of Wikipedia articles and things like that. But it gradually became also, as I did go back into wildlife and I did go back to university, I started sort of blogging about my experiences in the wild and stuff like this and I found that a lot of fun but it was very ad hoc and a very very personal effort so I ended up sort of abandoning that at the end of when I finished university in the UK and I had a year between 
my undergrad and my master's where I worked full time as an editor, which was a real nice break from academia, actually, and very needed. And when I started my master's again and I was back into sort of wildlife conservation field and doing all this cool work, I really wanted that outlet again. And I've always loved writing. I've always done it obsessively, like daily, just my whole life. And yeah, that so during my master's was basically when I decided I wanted to set it up again. And then once my master's finished, I finally had the time and I'd established myself as an editor enough that I could just set it up and actually put some real effort into it. So I set up Stuff Into Nature partly as like an outlet, again, of my passion, but also because I... I, while I work in sort of freelance writing as well now, and it's a way to kind of build up your own portfolio, having a blog. So if you want to go into environmental journalism or any sort of science journalism, having a blog is a really good start because it's evidencing your passion, first of all, and you can share your talent or the way that you write and you can build up those skills. You can connect with other bloggers. Like there's so many good reasons to set up a blog and it's so easy and so affordable these days. It's definitely worth doing. So yeah, it was partly a a career move, a hobby move. (laughs) And it's just grown. It grew quite quickly from being like, just see how this goes. It it was quite popular, quite a lot. Yeah, it was a lot more popular, a lot faster than I expected. And then I had this idea to include the jobs board. So I was at that point, my first few articles, I think I had an interview of a scientist and I'd provided some resources. So like free conservation courses online and where you can volunteer for wildlife on that line and shared some environmental research, things like that. And then I realized because of my sort of habit of obsessively collecting lists of things, I have an email list. I get like my email address inbox gets like hundreds of emails a day because I just have spent years signing up to things. And I realized every single day I was getting all of these amazing like wildlife and environmental conservation type roles in from loads of different sources and some quite niche sources as well. And some coming just directly to me from people. And I realized like, it's such a shame that I'm just hoarding them now because a lot of them are not even things that I would apply for or have time to apply for. And then I just realized I should share them because although there's these specialized jobs boards, like in the UK, there's environment jobs. And I think the US is things like conservation career board, like everyone knows about them. If you type in a Google search, that's what comes up. And there's so many different people competing for wildlife jobs. It's, it's such a popular field. So many people love animals and it's a dream job for so many people. But I'd over the years just gradually built up this sort of these sort of more untapped ways of finding these jobs. So I set up the jobs board and the internships board literally just as a way to try to break down the barriers of entry into a field like wildlife conservation. So I do think there's a bit of gatekeeping there. And just to make it more accessible for more people, because I would often receive like in my inbox, paid volunteering or well, not paid, (laughs) paid internships, genuine volunteering opportunities, not ones you have to pay for, lots of good things like that. And often if you search, if you do a Google search for like wildlife volunteering, it just comes up with ones where you're, you have to pay thousands of pounds to work for free. And it's just not accessible to so many people. Yeah, it's basically, I set it up to try and help break down those barriers and to just share this content that I was already getting. That's fantastic. Yeah, I have a, a, a blog post on job boards and yours is definitely on there. But you're right. Yeah, and I, I definitely have yours out there. But you're right, though. There's like when I was looking for jobs, I would search for a niche nonprofits that I was interested in working for. And some people or some organizations they only post their jobs on their on their website, and it's yeah. just hard to get around. 
Mm-hmm. Okay, so let's get into the main topic. You brought it up that about barriers to entry in this field. Can you talk more about that and m- mention what some of them are? Yeah, go ahead. Wildlife conservation, as I mentioned, is very popular. So that's immediately there's going to be um, challenges there um, because there's going to be so many people competing for the same jobs. But one of the barriers to wildlife conservation, which I think is almost unique in science or in this sort of field is it's more pronounced than say something like molecular biology is just the fact that it can be so expensive to get started because over the years it's become so competitive organizations have realized that they don't need to pay people and not only do they not need to pay people but they can actually charge people for the privilege of coming out and working for them and whilst on one hand you go, okay, well, these conservation organizations, they need the money to run, like this is a way of getting it. The trouble is you're basically setting a path out that only allows one section of society to get into this field. And that is a section where you're either from a wealthy background and you have parents that are able to pay for you, which is, you know, no shame in that. Every parent would love to be able to do that for their kids, to be able to pay for them to do the career that they love. But it also takes away the people that haven't grown up with a safety net. So if you, even if you are someone, so like with me, I have done these paid things before when I was younger and I didn't know so much about it and it really felt like my only option. And I took out loans so that I could do it and I'm still paying those off. So I do not recommend it. That's partly why I set up the jobs board as well. So people wouldn't go down that same route as I did. But with me, even though I wasn't from a wealthy background where my parents could pay for me to do these things, I had the safety net because my parents, they have a house and I have a nice family life with my parents. I've been very lucky. So because of that, mentally, I've got that mental safety net. I knew that I could go away, come back, and I may not have money straight off the bat or I may not be able to get a job straight off the bat, but I'd be able to go and stay with my parents until I got on my feet. They'd be able to emotionally support me um, and physically support me as much as they could. And in a field like wildlife conservation where your first roles are very much you have to just go out and work and you're not going to get paid or you won't get paid but you'll get a stipend, but the stipend is like £100 a month. It's impossible for people to do. You can't just come home to nothing. You have to have a pot of money there or you have to have a safety net. Not only that, but if you've grown up in a household that doesn't have good income, if you've come up from grown up in an impoverished background, you just are not going to be able to mentally make that leap. If you've grown up watching your parents struggle to find money for basic things, then even if you can physically make it work that you go out there either on a loan or whatever, you're not going to want to. You're not going to feel secure enough to do that. And it's wrong. It's not right. In science, we need such a variety of opinions, of ages, of backgrounds, because we're finding answers to questions. And the way that you find answers to questions is by collaborating with other people, listening to them, getting loads of different viewpoints and just figuring stuff out together. But if all you've got stepping into the world of like wildlife conservation is middle and upper class people especially westerners going out to all these other countries you're not getting that variety and you're not going to get all the different viewpoints and all the different just all this intellect that's just not just completely untapped Um, and it's unfair for the people that can't do it and it's also just massively detrimental to the field itself. Yeah. Oh, you really summed that up well. I mean, that (laughs) is, yeah. I mean, it's a huge, a huge problem. So I'm like you, I am one of those fortunate people. My family wasn't incredibly wealthy, but I had a, a safety net and my parents always supported me. And I, 
after I graduated from college, I had three internships and I was lucky they were all paid. Well, the last one kind of wasn't paid because I, it was in Kenya. So I was paid in a Kenyan salary Um, and then I had to pay uh, half of my airfare. So essentially it was a volunteer position because I worked, it ended up canceling each other out. So I worked for free for a year. Wow. And yeah, and those internships, they didn't line up perfectly. I mean, of course, I could have gotten a, a temp job working at Starbucks or something, and I did do that, but it's nice to have some place to move back home to, and you don't have to worry mm-hmm. about paying for meals, paying for rent. So yeah, and I actually, I tell people a lot of times, if I didn't have that safety net, I don't know if I would be willing to become a wildlife biologist. Right. It would be and, terrifying. <laughs> yeah, and then even... Even after your degree, if you get a higher degree like master's or PhD, well, PhD, more and more people are getting postdocs now. It used to be that you only got a postdoc, so that, that's a temporary position after you graduate if um, you were going into academia, but now people get several postdocs because it's so competitive. And, and at that time, you're older, so you might have family that you have to move around. Yeah. Increasingly difficult. Yeah. And yeah, so for people who are not in this career, your degree really isn't enough. Experience is really important. And it's one of the major credentials that, that people look at when you're trying to, when you're looking at students or when you're looking at people for job applications, you want to, to see if they have experience or not. So it separates people out. And if you can't afford that experience, I mean, nowadays I see postings that are, you have to pay thousands of dollars to travel. And this is especially true if you want to do international work and especially true if you want to do charismatic species. But like you said, yeah, you have to invest thousands of dollars to do that. And you're right. I don't think this is like other fields. Definitely not my husband's field. He's in electrical engineering. And yeah, my, stuff, my boyfriend's a business consultant. <laughs> it's not the same. <laughs> yeah. One of my friends, her brother works at Facebook and she said, I think he gets, I think she said 10,000 a month for an internship. It was something oh crazy God. like that. Yeah, I know. Yeah, it's, it's definitely hard. And a lot of the jobs that I see that they are proper full-blown paid all right, salary conservation jobs. A lot of them say, usually I've seen them five to seven years experience. So what you're potentially looking at is the minimum requirement is usually a bachelor's degree, almost always a master's degree as well, if it's a sort of project coordinator, research station type role. So first you need that. So in the UK, that'll be about four years plus a ton of debt. (laughs) And then you have to do basically be prepared to do up to five to seven years of probably unpaid or extremely lowly paid work and again that becomes increasingly difficult if you then you know start a family or or want to settle down in any way but also it's just it's a big thing to do especially if you're someone that's not come from a background where you've got that safety net as we said so it it is a career field it is a yeah it's a field of work that just has so many barriers and it's just so detrimental to the field itself it's it's kind of bizarre to me that People, like organizations themselves aren't trying to do something about it. Obviously, they need to get their money from somewhere, but there also needs to be a balance between using these people coming out for profit and also just making sure you've got the best people on the job. Yeah, and the solutions to this, I'm going to ask you what you think about this, but to me, it just seems very difficult because 
even in um, academia, we face this. So when I was a postdoc and even an undergrad, you have to apply for grants to fund your research. And when I was a graduate student, my research was genetics, which is really expensive. You have to send samples off to the lab and have them processed and everything. Mm. And if you have to pay for someone, you get less help and your science goes slower. And then, and then at the same time, I would have you know students emailing me asking to volunteer in my lab. So it's a hard decision to make because I don't want to deny these people um, this opportunity because it's, I mean, that's what I did. I volunteered in the lab and it's great experience, Mm -hmm. but you're right. Only certain people can afford to do it. And then as scientists or nonprofits, the the work or the research can be slowed down because we just don't have as much Mm -hmm. help. Yeah, it's a tricky one. I, like, I definitely don't have the answer. Like, I definitely haven't showed up with a plan. But I think it's there's a big difference between ex- exploitative volunteer work and genuine volunteer work, genuine volunteer opportunities. So, like, with my jobs board, I list volunteering, you know, unpaid volunteering. But it's volunteering that I've looked at and said, like, yes, you can get stuff out of this. It's not just showing up and then being the general dog's body from the advert anyway and uh, it's actually doable for a lot of people so for instance if you're volunteering to work at a lab giving people that option of well how often can you volunteer what hours work what days work can we work around you like there's definitely still a place for volunteering absolutely like I've done volunteering in all different different types of things but it's just the difference between a genuine opportunity and then someone saying give us thousands of pounds come out here and let us treat you how we want to treat you. Because that's another issue that I've heard from a lot of people is you go out to these places, they're very remote. Sometimes the, the little communities of scientists that have been living on their own for a very long time, there's a set hierarchy and there's a set tone for how things work. And you're sort of dumped there and then you're treated however they want to treat you. Like I, I went to one where women were t- treated incredibly badly by a man in charge. And there's nothing you can do because how can you report back to base in a different country in the UK that this is happening when you're in a different country and you're getting screamed at or whatever, whatever's happening. How can you report that safely? You know, because you're stuck out there with them still. So there's, there's just so many issues in the field of wildlife conservation. I feel like I've gone off the point a bit. What was, <laughs> oh, yeah, no, I mean, <laughs> this is totally the point. And if you, if you know, I don't know if you know of Ashley Scarlett, she has a podcast, Mindfulness and Conservation, Dancing in Pink Hiking Boots. And she's very passionate about this. She's experienced similar things. Um, yeah. They also talk about this a lot on the Marine Science podcast, but yeah, it's your your situation is not unique. Did, were you able to tell the organization after when you returned back to the UK or did you just not bring it up? I, I didn't. If something like that happened to me now, I would react very differently to how I did then. But at that time, A, it was my first sort of big volunteering role. And B, everyone else seemed to just sort of, a lot of people seemed to just accept it and just take it which wasn't good. I mean, one girl, when she came back, she ended up going into therapy because of how she'd been treated. I also wasn't perfect myself, which is why I didn't, why I chose not to complain. Like I, I absolutely wasn't as bad as, you know, the the people that were basically bullies and in charge, but I had my own sort of mental health issues and I was, I had some pretty intense anxiety and it was, I didn't know how best to respond to certain events. So 
I just felt like like now I know that I absolutely had the right to go and to complain and the way that I reacted is valid if not ideal but I just didn't feel I had the strength then or the position to do it whereas now in contrast where something similar happened and I actually did take action this time so um, I would handle things differently but you sort of go out there especially when you're young and you're quite trusting and it's not exclusive to mentors women either I've had stories of women in these positions of power just treating people really badly. Something that I found very, very telling was a few years ago, Monga Bay actually did an article on this and they interviewed people uh, who had been in these situations where, you know, they'd been out in a remote field station and someone in charge had been very abusive. And what I found really interesting about that article is there were so many comments on the bottom, a lot of them proclaiming to be sort of male professors or, or other like workers in the field who were just like, stop complaining this is what you signed up for I think someone even made a comment of this is anti-men this is sexist towards men take it down and all the article had been actually included a case study of a woman who had been abusive towards the staff out there but all the article had been was just reporting factually these interviews what these people had said and yet a man commented underneath in the field of wildlife conservation saying this is sexist towards men so that man to me was probably one of those men because if yeah. you're someone's experience of being of suffering from sexist abuse and you're going that's anti-man that's not what sexism towards men is like it's it's just not so there, there are a bunch of things that need tackling and I think the like I mean that for me demonstrated that in a big way there needs to be just a change in the way that people think in wildlife conservation I read a job advert once again which was very telling to the other barrier we're talking about where they said, so it's the, it was volunteering, it was overseas, and they're like, you're not going to be paid, blah, 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 just what you normally get in those adverts. But they'd also added a little bit, which I thought was pretty disgraceful, which was essentially, if you're one of those people that think that your life and your money is more important than conserving the environment, then we're not interested in you. We only care about people that will come out for months and work hard and they've, they're above all that. And so basically shaming you for wanting yeah. money to live. Like, are you not aware that people will still have bills? They'll still need to go home and pay rent. They may have families that depend on them. Like so many reasons you need to make money. Yeah. They're not mutually exclusive. <laughs> Yeah, it was just absolute nonsense to me that not only were they not paying, not only was it full time overseas for, I think, minimum six months, they were literally insulting you in advance if you didn't want to do it. And I think, again, that just demonstrates the need for change in thought process, the way we look at it. Like, it shouldn't be the norm that people are working for free or paying to work. Like, sure, a small stipend if that's all an organization can afford, but it's it's just like there's such a big difference in quality as well from what you can get like if someone's not prepared to pay you you've got to really got to ask yourself why like are they really struggling or are they just taking the mickey basically yeah I would say that I would probably have done the same thing as you and not reported the person because not that that's like the right thing to do, but it, when, especially when you're starting out in this career and when you're young, like you're scared, you're scared it could have trickle down effects and, and affect your career and you so might not be, is. yeah, and you might not be hireable in the future. So yeah, the, I mean, that's definitely a concern. It's concern, absolutely. Yeah. Like, I remember that and I... Yeah, like even now, like this person still works in the field. And at the time, everyone was like, oh, it's a really small field. You need to get on everyone's good side. And I'd like, burnt. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I, like even now, like there's no way I'd work with that person. And there's sometimes been a role come up. And when I've seen the connection, I've been like, no, absolutely not. But what I would say to people is if you're worried about 
burning bridges or potentially harming your career in the future would you really want to work with that person and not only that would you really want to work for people who respect that person's opinion because the way I see it now is I would happily if I was in that same situation now I would complain about them straight away I do it publicly privately all over like I complain because not only would I not want to work with them again I would not want to work with anyone that positively associates himself with them because I would not respect the way that they treat people and I would not want to be with them so you're not hurting your chances it's if anything that they're self-selecting themselves out of your your career you will never have to work with that person again so it's actually a positive thing to burn bridges when that you're if you're burning bridges of people who are toxics who are people who you don't want to work with it's a very positive thing yeah that's really a great way to think about it in terms of um, changing the system one of the things that I think what we can do is what we're doing right now is talking about it because like you said I think a lot of people go into this career and they don't know about this. And then suddenly they find themselves in debt. And mm-hmm. if you go in with this knowledge then you can more carefully weigh, can I afford this? Unfortunately though, it does exclude people. So I don't know ultimately what the, the solution is besides paying people more, but conservation constantly doesn't have enough money. Oh, yeah. yeah. So what do you think this this barrier um, to entry, what do you think like the ultimate impact is on conservation? I think there's undoubtedly such a negative impact because it's just pushing people out of the field that you would want in the field. You're pushing out the people that, you know, they're the ones that aren't doing the bullying, <laughs> first of all. So you're pushing out genuinely good people that probably have better people skills, that are probably better at working with local communities. You're also pushing out people like a lot of the work. So my sort of area that I tend to work in is tropical forest ecology, so tropical countries. So often you're going out to countries where there is poverty, genuine poverty, and you're coming out there as someone who's from a sort of Western middle-class background. And like, I can't connect with people on that level. I don't know what poverty is like. I've been very lucky in life. I've not been in that situation. But if you are someone from a more impoverished background or you've had to fight harder for the things that you want, you could probably go out there and you could make that connection with local communities. Because at the end of the day, we all know it's you know common knowledge now, conservation shouldn't be about Westerners going in, taking animals and breeding them or um, just going in and taking and being sort of a bit of a white savior. Like we know that it needs to be about communities coming together, funding matching up with locals and the funding going into those communities to support them as rangers or support conservation efforts in that way. And who better to connect with those people? Like if that's, if the funding is coming from a Western country, then who better to connect than someone that has come from a poorer background and can relate a bit more and can understand the challenges better than people that are from a more middle-class or wealthy background. Overall, the impact is just going to be so negative because we're so reliant on those connections Um, And the people that are entering the profession and also able to stay in the profession aren't always the best people that should be in the profession. Yeah. And also think about trying to get people involved from the community, promoting those people and and advocating for them to become researchers and work for nonprofits or conservation. Because even even here in the United States, even though people in general are more are more privileged than um, some of the, than the kinds of poverty you're talking about, if like for example, my first internship was in Utah. If I got a job permanently in Utah where I had to work with a local community, 
I would stick out because the cultural differences between um, where I grew up in, in New York, and I didn't even grow up in a very progressive area in New York. I grew up in Western New York, but there's still huge cultural differences and conservation is, is usually not as effective when you have an outsider coming in and, and trying to work with the local community. It's much more, it's much more effective when you have somebody who can, who can talk more openly, who they, who they trust more, who's, who's like them. Yeah, I mean, in the ideal world, like the money, the funding for, so when I went to Madagascar and did my work there, it was kind of crazy when I got there that I was there and there were lots of science students from Western countries there. But you sort of had this feeling of like, this, should, this shouldn't be me, this should be students in Madagascar doing this because yeah. there's not a lack of people that want to. I mean, we recently um, had to, we fundraised for one of um, my friends from Madagascar who, she was amazing. She'd been like working to raise money to do her master's. And then with the pandemic, something happened with her funding. So then we were all scrambling to make sure that she could still do it. And thankfully she could, but it's that thing of like, you shouldn't have to, you know what I mean? You shouldn't, the, the funding should just be going to people in those countries, like to study and to research and then work in their own countries in the field but the problem is a lot of the money in conservation and a lot of the the wealth is in western countries western universities should i say like western ngos so there's that pairing up element of going to a country with the money and then and especially how conservation is set up at the moment where people are paying thousands to go volunteer or to do their thesis somewhere that's an injection of money into conserving an area so it, it's a difficult one. Like, I don't think that conservation as it, as it is now, wildlife conservation is sustainable or as effective as it could be by far. But I also don't have any great solutions. I think, like you said, the conversations like this that we're having are very positive. But at the same time, they can, people can be so aggressively against the very things that we're sort of agreeing upon because they take it yeah. as a personal attack. And I think that's something that's really needs to be addressed is it's never a personal attack. It's not saying like Western people should never go there or it's just doing it in a healthy way and in a balanced way. Like it should not, we should, it should not be majority Westerners going out to, to countries where conservation is taking place. It should be majority local people, but the money's not there, but it should be. <laughs> so that's an element that needs to change in conservation. But yeah, I definitely don't know about, enough about projects management or whatever it is you need to know about in order to change an entire field of science but there's yeah another thing we could do as employers if you're an employer out there is not weigh experience so heavily so especially for more entry-level jobs maybe look at the the Canada's writing more or look at these experiences and see that okay well this person probably had to pay for this and this person has way more experience but like I said, just because probably they had to pay for this, whereas this other person might not have been had or might not have been able to do those opportunities. Yeah. And I, I think one of the barriers is that a lot of the, the paid roles or at least the stipend roles will often be to so say it's a one in Kenya or something, they'd be like, I'll preferably have worked in a African savannah ecosystem before and it seems like that I see in jobs a lot like if it's a rainforest job has preferably yeah like, you know, we'll, we have a preference for people that have worked in rainforest before well that is if you if you're brand new to the field and then you're seeing this you're then gonna be willing to put yourself in debt to do that volunteering opportunity in a rainforest so that you can then move on to the next step of like a stipend or an internship 
I got really lucky in that one of the first internships I ever got, it was in association with my university in the UK. And it was looking at tarantulas and studying tarantulas. And I was not the most experienced person or the most skilled person that applied. I know that because the people that um, hired me told me <laughs> that they said that I was by far the most passionate person. And, oh, that's great. Yeah. And that's why they selected me. Because I, I was the end of my first year and pretty much everyone else that had applied, I think actually literally everyone else that had applied had been at the end of their third year. So they'd done all the techniques that were going to be done, like phylogenetic techniques. They they knew more um, about putting papers together and stuff like this. And I rocked up <laughs> with my very limited skill set. And I just talked loads about how great arachnids were and showed them pictures of like my favorite spiders (laughs) and I did obviously do the normal things of like evidencing the skills that I did have and yeah they told me the same day that I'd got it and they just said that I was the only one that showed real passion and that was a fantastic internship working with the best people the best employers like I got so much out of it and they were really wonderful and I think that goes to show really like the people that put in that little bit more thought of like it doesn't just have to be ticking these skill boxes. It can be looking at things like passion because it's just not accessible to so many people. Um, And you need that diversity in conservation. You need it so badly and it's just, it's really hard to get. Yeah. Wow. That's a great story. I'm glad to hear that you got that. And that's, and that's something that employers can think about is yeah, looking at the cover letter and seeing how passionate they are rather than just how much experience they have. And the reason why you brought up that people working in Kenya want to have people who had worked in African savannas before is because a lot of people have this perception that fieldwork is very glamorous and, and beautiful. And of course it is. You could just see amazing animals and amazing things, but it's also really, really, really hard. And it's a lot harder than people think it is. And, and not even like in terms of physical work, but just like dealing with field life, like the same food every day or insects or just uncomfortable stuff in, in general. And lots of people more than you'd expect complain about that stuff. So that's why they want that. <laughs> yeah, well, that's, that's the other thing, isn't it? Because I guess when I did my master's in the tropical forest ecology stuff, they said that previously they would take on people that hadn't done sort of overseas field work and stuff. But then they would complain about things that were just not possible to control and find it really difficult and complain about how basic things were. Um, And then when when my sort of cohort, when we went out, we all loved it. And that was because we'd all been out in these remote stations and things before. But I think even accepting volunteering or internship experience that's in your country, like it doesn't have to be, you know, we'll give preference to people that have worked in rainforest, like why not preference to people that have gone to the Scottish Highlands for a summer? Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's looking at what people can actually achieve. Yeah, and there's other weird, yeah, just weird barriers as well. Just things like having the time, like what if you're a, a full-time carer or what if you have a kid? What, you're not going to be less good at fieldwork. You're not going to be less good at conserving the environment. You just haven't had the same opportunities. But I, I think in field conservation, like you said, like fieldwork can be very hard because, I mean, first of all, you're navigating like, usually quite a small group of people but also a constantly changing group of people sometimes which can be hard in itself and yeah like same food different things getting hurt (laughs) and physical demands as well I can't remember where I was going with that (laughs) it's okay 
Yeah, don't worry about what I was saying. I can't remember. <laughs> Another solution is you can look, if you're a student, you can look into your university to see if there's a work-study program. Our, when I worked at the museum, our lab was affiliated with North Carolina State University. And that was something I thought that they had that was fantastic, where you work in a lab and get research experience, but you get paid for it. And at the very least, you should be able to get research credits for it. That's another thing you can you can try to do is get course credit for volunteering in the lab. Um, yeah. So you'll get that experience, but it's you won't be paid for it, but at least it'll count towards your degree. Yeah, we have yeah, that sounds really good. We have stuff like study abroad years where one of your university years will be abroad. And I think your tuition fees in the UK covers it. So actually, I think it's usually an additional year sort of squeezed in, but I think your fees cover it. So that's always an option. But actually, maybe it's not because we're leaving the EU. So that was an option. <laughs> if you're yeah, that's an EU country, then that's probably an option, just not from the UK. <laughs> yeah, here in the US is definitely not an option. You have to pay extra to study. Well, actually, I, I, it might depend on the program. I shouldn't say that because I did I did a study abroad program outside of my university, um, yeah. but I don't think that's the case. I think a lot, so something I do now, if I was to go to university now in the UK for the first time, I wouldn't go in the UK. I'd go off to the Netherlands or something like that because what I didn't realize when I was younger there's a lot of um, universities in Europe where they teach in English. Everything's in English. And it's a lot cheaper than going in the UK, even if you go internationally. So, yeah, I mean, this isn't really for an American. Well, it could be for an American audience. Look up going to university in like the Netherlands, Czech Republic. I've had friends in like loads of different countries. And in terms of getting experience, I mean, if you're aiming to return to your country, of origin and apply to jobs there then that's still showing that you can go overseas you can integrate yourself you can find opportunities and yeah it's, it's still I think a lot of people that want to work in wildlife conservation are quite adventurous type people anyway so they're kind of more willing to take jumps into things but that's always an option <laughs> yeah well we've talked about a lot of I want to say great things, but it's not, <laughs> these various yeah. entries aren't great. <laughs> so we talked about a lot of issues going on in the field of conservation. And before we end, do you have any advice for someone who's starting off in this field? I would say if you're starting off in this field that you should absolutely work on building a little savings pot. I think you just need to accept there are going to be some costs upfront like when you start out and I wish that I'd done that even if it's just squirreling away like a little bit of a part-time check or I mean there's so many ways to make money online now as well or like sell your own art or things like that and just try and build a little pot and just reserve that for if you're going away to do a volunteering thing and you're not paid that's a pot of money you can come back to and you can just have that for a little while until you get a job the other thing I'd probably say is what was it I thought of one earlier money I would say like don't underestimate yourself and really go out there and apply for things even if you don't think you're fully qualified I mean obviously if it's your way underqualified then don't waste your time with it but even if you think there's no way you can get it go for it anyway because you might get lucky like I did with that internship where you connect with the the people that are running the project just because you're so passionate so it's definitely worth not underestimating what you have to offer um, and then I just say, keep your eyes open, uh, apply to everything that you want to and um, just keep going. I think you, there's no reason to quit. Like people 
sort of talk about like, oh, how long should you do it for and then call it quits and stuff. But I always think it's a bit of a weird one because if you're doing what you're passionate about, there's no need to quit because in five years time, you'll either be doing what you love or you'll be doing what you don't love. <laughs> like you're still going to potentially probably be there in five years time. So you might as well just do what you love unless you find something that you're passionate about more. So like with me, I sort of move, moved away, not so much because of money stuff or anything like that, but just because I was like, I know what I enjoy. Like I love frolicking around rainforests. I love doing field work. I, I just, I don't like data. I don't like statistics. I don't like the politics of universities. I don't like being stuck behind a desk. And I don't like that stuff enough that it was worth me stepping out and doing the stuff that I do love. And now I get to go out to cool places and like make little videos and write about things and I prefer that and do the odd like I quite like change so I think also it's important to just remember there's loads of different wildlife conservation doesn't just have to be going from like field job to field job there's definitely skills that you can you can get from starting out there and then move into things like um, NGO work or um, freelance stuff like a wildlife photography like I people can move to all sorts of different things just if you're passionate about it keep going and maybe try and make a positive impact about on the things that we've talked about if you can don't know how but good luck yeah absolutely and to work in conservation you don't have to be a, a wildlife biologist that's another big thing yeah. is when I looked at conservation jobs you can work for an amazing conservation organization and be a lawyer or a financial planner or yeah, a fundraiser what you can be like stuff like graphic designers. And yeah. Stuff, all, and even these days, like communications, like videography and photography. I mean, that's becoming more and more important to conservation organization to fundraise. So fundraising, that's a job as well. <laughs> you don't have to have a science degree. Right. Well, thank you so much for talking to me today. I had such a great time talking to you and, and hopefully a solution to these problems will present itself on the horizon yeah. yeah thank you for letting me run <laughs> have a great day if you want to learn more with stephanie or connect with her her blog is stephintonature.com and you can follow her on instagram at forest lady steph and same thing on Twitter at Forest Lady Steph. She has all of the social media channels and she just recently started a YouTube. So make sure to, to subscribe and definitely check that out. Speaking of YouTube, I have been wrapping up my series on imposter syndrome on my YouTube channel where I post a tip. I've been trying to do this every day, but I quickly got bogged down. But I have 13 tips that have really, really helped me overcome imposter syndrome, which is rampant in our field. And I should be uploading the last tip today. So they're all short videos, just a couple of minutes long, and you can binge watch it within like a half an hour or so. So thank you guys so much for listening. I'm so grateful for you. And I hope you have an amazing day. Be kind to each other always. And be kind to animals too. Bye.